This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Robin Shannon. Fans of the popular game show Jeopardy are mourning the loss of host Alex Trebek. He died on November 8th after a battle with pancreatic cancer. Fordham President Father Joseph McShane said Trebek had special ties to the university. He established the Alex Trebek Endowed Scholarship Fund. His son Matt is a graduate of the university, and Trebek was also given an honorary Fordham University degree. On this week's Fordham Conversations, we take you back to the time Alex Trebek visited the university to share his advice and his stories with the Fordham community. I'm going to assume that many of you are Jeopardy fans. And I say that. I say that because in case I notice some of you getting up to leave in 10 or 12 minutes, I will delude myself into thinking it's not because they're bored with you, Trebek. It's because they want to get back to their rooms to watch tonight's episode of Jeopardy. So, this has been a very eventful and exciting year for me and my family. It started in January. We welcomed in the new year in Antarctica. That was a marvelous trip. Three weeks later, I was here in New York in Westchester County at IBM headquarters where we were taping the great IBM Jeopardy Challenge with their supercomputer Watson taking on Ken Jennings and Brad Rutter, two of our most successful and best contestants. Watson, as you would call, won that competition. The following month, February, late February, I celebrated my 50th year in broadcasting. Then, in May, I was back here in New York on this campus receiving an honorary doctorate from Fordham University. Then it was on to Washington, where I hosted the National Geography Bee. The following month, June, I was in Las Vegas, where I received a special Emmy, a Lifetime Achievement Award, from the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences. And right after that, my family and I left for Europe, and we spent the next two weeks cruising the Danube River, visiting some marvelous cities, Budapest, Vienna, Nuremberg. Nuremberg was of particular interest to me because I'm a, a student, if you will, of World War II. And in Nuremberg, as some of you know, that's where the Nazis held some of their most impressive rallies. And I visited those locations. And they also have a museum now that chronicles the entire history of the National Socialist Party in Germany, and that museum is set up in a building that was designed by Albert Speer, who was Hitler's favorite architect. Then came back, well, before that we went on to Prague, another marvelous city which in World War II was very little damaged by Allied bombing. And so it's the way it was half a century ago, and it's marvelous. My son Matthew and I uh, took a side trip to the Nazi concentration camp, Theresienstadt, and that was very fascinating also to see what the Germans were able to do in such a short period of time to make life miserable for others. Then after Prague, back home, and on to San Francisco, where I hosted the International 
Geography B, which featured 17 teams from 17 different countries competing against each other. And that's also where I had that little encounter at the Marriott Marquis Hotel, chasing a burglar down the hallway and rupturing my Achilles tendon. I will stop at nothing to entertain myself. <laughs> August had some sad moments for me. Uh, my son Matthew came back here to Fordham after spending the entire summer with us, and this was a big moment for him because he's a junior, and this was his first time living off campus in an apartment. We also had to say goodbye to my daughter Emily, who is now a freshman in residence at Loyola Marymount University, which is in Los Angeles. Obviously, we cannot get away from the Jesuits, no matter what we do. So it has been a great, great year, and tonight, the culmination, the icing on the cake, if you will. I am here in the Bronx and going to dinner at Enzo's. Truly, my cup runneth over. I saw the flyer advertising this evening's event. Come out and meet Alex Trebek. Question the man with all the answers. Now that's some scary stuff, isn't it? From my point of view, question the man with all the answers. Talk about pressure. Am I nervous? Yes, I'm nervous. This is not something I do usually. What's different? Well, first of all, tonight, I have to give answers after the questions, not before. That's not familiar territory for me. There's an old expression that says, you get what you pay for. You guys paid nothing to come here. However, if you were to go away saying, well, Trebek was nothing, even though we paid nothing, you would be disappointed, and that would put extra pressure on me and make me feel bad. Another element that contributes to my nervousness is the fact that on television, whether you like me or not, you have to admit that I come across as someone who is intelligent, who is bright. Now, those of you who don't think I'm very bright, you can say, well, of course he's bright the way John Lovitz did on one of our celebrity tournaments. Of course you know all the answers. They're written on a sheet of paper in front of you. Thank you, John. Yes, that's true. But there are times when I ad lib comments and you have to look at that and say, hey, maybe he is very bright. I go back to my mention of Mark Twain a little while ago. Mark Twain's one of my heroes. And he wrote a story about a man who was a stranger in town and didn't speak much, said very little. And everybody thought, boy, he must be really smart, you know? And then one day, he opened his mouth and removed all of their doubts. And that's what I'm worried about tonight, that I will open my mouth and remove all of the doubts you may have had about how intelligent I really am. And of course, there is that fourth element. My son Matthew is here tonight, that puts extra pressure on me because I see there are a number of parents 
in the audience, and even you young people can relate to this. How many times have you heard this or something similar? Dad, Dad, stop. <laughs> you know, I get that a lot from my daughter, more than from Matthew, but that's okay. Now, if I do not appear nervous, it is because when I left the reception area, I went into one of the offices and downed four glasses of Chardonnay. <laughs> Buzz City. Mm. Now, now that could create problems, but not the kind of problems you are thinking of. The truth is that I don't really get to be very funny until after my sixth glass of Chardonnay. So I'm not sure what you can expect from me. You're listening to Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Robin Shannon. Today we're remembering Jeopardy host Alex Trebek. He died on November 8th after a battle with pancreatic cancer. Trebek had special ties with the Fordham University community. Today's show is a rebroadcast of the time Trebek came to the college to share advice, his history, and some funny stories. But we're here to deal with answers and questions, and while you are thinking about what you want to ask, let me tell you a little bit about my background so that uh, perhaps you will have food for thought. I mentioned uh, in my remarks a few minutes ago that in February I celebrated my 50th year in broadcasting. I got into broadcasting by accident. It was never planned. I was a student at the University of Ottawa, majoring in philosophy in my junior year, and I could not afford my tuition. And my tuition was a whopping $500 a year. I wish Father McShane were here, because <laughs> I would have directed that comment right at him. $500 a year, couldn't afford it. So I applied on a whim to the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation for a job as a summer relief announcer, and they hired me. And then I worked for them over the Christmas holidays, and then in February they came to me and they said, we have two openings on our permanent announce staff, and we would like to offer you one of those positions. And I said, terrific, if I can finish my university courses, and they said, why not? My classes in the Faculty of Philosophy were from 9 a.m. to noon, so I had the afternoons and evenings free, and that's when they had me working. And immediately after graduation, I joined the permanent staff, and this all happened in Ottawa, Canada's capital. And two years later, I was transferred to the English Network headquarters, which are in Toronto. I was one of 20 announcers on staff, but I was different from all of the other announcers. First of all, I was younger. Secondly, I was not cut in their mold. They were all perfect speakers, great pronouncers of words, great enunciators, and I was a little loosey-goosey. But I was the only announcer on the English staff who was bilingual. I spoke English and French. 
Now in Montreal, where the French headquarters were, all of the announcers were invariably totally bilingual. They all announced in French, but they all spoke English as well. So I've been in broadcasting now for 50 years, and even though I got into it by accident, it has been a marvelous, marvelous life for me. There's uh, a line that I heard not too long ago that said, find something you're good at, and if you really like doing it, you will never have to work a day in your life. And that's the way it's been with me and broadcasting. And broadcasting has taught me a number of important lessons. First of all, it's given me a pretty good standard of living. It has enabled me to travel all over the world. And even when there were down periods, I learned a great deal. On the rocks of our despair do we build our character, right? Well, that's what I learned to do. Early on in my career, I was appointed to an elite broadcasting team. We were the ones who would do live telecasts of special events, the uh, National War Remembrance ceremonies on November the 11th. In 1967, that was Canada's centennial year, and there were a lot of special programs being developed. One in particular on July 1st, which is Canada Day, was to take place on Parliament Hill on a giant stage that had been erected in front of the Peace Tower. It was to be a two and a half hour, very special entertainment extravaganza. We had singers, we had dancers, we had acrobats, we had uh, pipers, uh, we had country western stars, we had marching bands, we had a group of beautiful 20-year-old girls who wore electric blue skin-tight leotards, the Kalev Estonian gymnasts, and they were performing routines on stage with big exercise balls. I was the English network host, and a man named Henri Bergeron was the French network host. In the audience for this great show, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, Prince Philip, the Prime Minister, members of the cabinet, and members of the diplomatic corps, and a lot of very important people from Canada's capital city. At the end of the show, as is the custom when Her Majesty attends, she and Prince Philip will either go backstage to greet all of the performers, or in our case, she came up on stage to greet all of the performers. We were all lined up along the stage. It was about a 120 feet long, the line. Because I was the English host, I was at the very end of the line. So Her Majesty starts working her way down the line, and down the line, getting closer and closer. Finally, she comes to me and says, that was a very good performance. Congratulations. Tell me your name and where you're from, please. And as I be began to respond to her, I couldn't help but notice that Her Majesty cast a subtle little glance over her shoulder. Now, royal protocol is such that Her Majesty will not leave the stage without Prince Philip. Now, you've all seen the royal couple in newsreels and on film. 
he is usually walking one or two paces behind the queen. In a situation like this, where they are greeting performers because he's more gregarious, he might lag five or ten feet behind. But on this occasion, when she reached me, we looked down, and Prince Philip was about fifty or sixty feet away, chatting up the Kalev Estonian gymnasts. <laughs> so Her Majesty was stuck with me. Now when you are with the British monarch, you do not initiate the conversation. It is up to the royal person to do that. So she started talking to me, and little by little we warmed up to each other, and by golly we were getting along like a house on fire. I mean, we couldn't have been closer if I had been her hairdresser, for crying out loud. And finally, Prince Philip makes his way all the way down to our position. Hello, good show. And that was it. Off they went. That night at my hotel, I got dozens of phone calls from friends, from relatives, from co-workers. Alex, what did you do? You mesmerized the queen. She spent just a few seconds with everybody else, but she spent what seemed like an eternity with you. My gosh! I didn't tell them why Her Majesty had spent all that time with me. I basked in the glory of the adulation I was receiving. Now, the very next day, we had another big entertainment show to put on. It was at the local football field, 14,000 people. It was more of an ethnic concert. A lot of ethnic groups performing. I was the English host, Henri was the French host. At the end of the show, all the performers are on stage. I am once again at the end of the line. Her Majesty starts moving her way down the line. Prince Philip this time is not all that far behind her. But as she is approaching me, to be honest with you, my chest began to swell a little, and I stood taller. I said, hey, here comes my new best friend. My gosh, we can pick up the conversation from yesterday. This is exciting. And when Her Majesty came to me, she said, that was a very good performance. Tell me your name and where you're from, please. <laughs> Didn't remember me at all. An important lesson that. Don't get too big for your britches. A lesson in humility. And over the years that lesson has been reinforced in some innocent ways and some not so innocent. About 15 or 17 years ago we were doing a contestant search at a downtown Manhattan hotel. And whenever I accompanied our contestant coordinators on these searches, the people who wanted to be players on Jeopardy would come into a room, let's say there are a hundred of them, they take the test, 50 question test, and then the coordinators pick up the sheets and go into a room next door to grade the tests. And while they are grading the tests, I would come into the room, surprise everybody, and they would applaud and say, oh look, Alex is here, this is great, and then they could ask me questions, and I would keep them occupied and entertained for the 20 or 25 minutes or so that it would take for our coordinators to grade their tests. And while I was doing this, 
at this downtown Manhattan hotel, one man in the back of the room, very back of the room, raised his hand. I said, yes. He said, who are you? I said, I beg your pardon? He said, who are you? And all the other people in the room are going, well, who the hell are you? I mean, uh, and I said, uh, well, why are you, well, why are you here? He said, well, I was walking through the lobby downstairs and I saw a sign that said Jeopardy test and I didn't know what it was, so I just came up and took the test. Didn't know me from Adam. Another little lesson in humility. The third one came about recently. We started taping our 28th season in Los Angeles about four weeks ago. And Johnny Gilbert, the announcer on the program who does the warm-up, was talking to the audience and happened to mention that, uh, as you all know, Alex and Pat Sajak uh, received Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Television Academy in uh, Las Vegas uh, two months ago. And when I came out, did the first part of the program, and then in the commercial break started taking questions from people in the audience, a young lady at the back raised her hand. I said, yes. She said, why did they give you a Lifetime Achievement Award? How does one answer that? Because I'm really good? Because I'm old? You know, you stick around long enough, they got to give you something. So throughout my career, I've been very fortunate to have had these moments where, where God looked down on me and she said, I'm not going to let him get too big for his britches. Interesting, I said she, and I didn't get one reaction from this crowd. Oh. Now, I mentioned that I got into broadcasting by accident because I had no money. Truth is, my dad had no money. I'll tell you a little bit about my father. He uh, emigrated from Ukraine in the 1920s, came to Canada. He was a violinist, and he saved up his money, money that he earned playing at weddings and at other parties, and finally came to Canada in the early 20s, got off the boat, and they put him on a train. Now, he was not destined for a music career in Canada. They put him on that train, and he was headed for the Prairie Provinces and a career as a farm laborer. But Dad wasn't too keen on that, so he jumped off the train in Ottawa, made his way back to Toronto, where a cousin of his was living, changed his name from Yuri Edvard Terebechuk to George Trebek, and started working at all kinds of jobs, and finally discovered that he had a talent and an aptitude for cooking, and he became a chef. And he worked at one of the big hotels in Toronto as uh, a pastry chef, and then moved to the mining community of Sudbury in Northern Ontario, where he met my mother and where I was born. When I was born, Sudbury had 47,000 people in it. And when I came to California in 1973 and went to a Dodger baseball game, I don't know why this always amazed me, but I'd look around and I'd say, Holy smokes, 
all of the citizens of Sudbury would fit in Dodger Stadium. It just blew my mind for some reason. So I grew up in Sudbury, and my dad worked as a chef at the Nickel Range Hotel. And then he decided to go out on his own, and he operated a restaurant in the northern Ontario community of Tomogamy. It's on Lake Tomogamy. It's a beautiful spot. And there aren't any other communities nearby. And the first summer he owned the restaurant, business was booming. They were putting the Trans-Canada Pipeline through northern Ontario. So he had all these construction workers and pipeline guys and welders coming in and ordering porterhouse steaks. They were big eaters. And business was great. And then when the pipeline had moved 30 or 40 miles away, they were going to another town to be fed. And Dad lost the restaurant. And that's why I had no money to pay for my college education. But Dad never despaired. My father was one of those people that everyone liked and that he liked. I hope you're going to watch the show. <laughs> You've heard the line that was uttered by Will Rogers, I never met a man I didn't like. Well, that was my dad. That applied to him. And when I was a young boy growing up, I took a great deal of pride in the fact that that's the kind of man my father was. Until I got to be in my 20s, and I started dating a woman who also never met a man she didn't like. <laughs> My dad, after I had started in broadcasting, saved up some money because he wanted to go back to Ukraine to visit the only close relative he had. That was his older sister. She was in her early 80s. His father had died before dad was born. His mother died shortly after, so he had been raised by his sister. His boyhood pal, Paul, who lived in Toronto at the same time, wanted to go back also because his mother, who was in her late 80s, was still alive. So they saved up their money, and I took them to the airport. Now, I want you to imagine this. They were going home, and they were going to be the rich North Americans, right? Paul had purchased a new suit for the trip, purple with green tie. My dad, I can't recall ever seeing him wearing a suit. He always wore a sport jacket, a light-colored sport jacket, usually checkered. It never matched his trousers. The tie and the shirt were never coordinated either. I took them to the Toronto airport to say goodbye, and there they stood. Their suitcases were tied with rope. You're all too young to know what I'm talking about. They looked as if they had just arrived from the old country, as if they had just gotten off the boat. But I gave them a hug and a kiss goodbye, and off they went. That brings up an interesting point. In the 40 years I knew my father, we, to the best of my knowledge and my memory, never shook hands. 
Anytime we greeted each other or parted or there were special events, it was always a hug and a kiss. And so here, Paul and Dad leave Toronto, fly to Amsterdam, from Amsterdam on to Kiev in Ukraine. Their luggage goes from Toronto to Amsterdam to Rome. And in those days, you weren't able to track luggage with all these electronic devices. Their luggage didn't catch up to them till three days before they were due to come home. So their first night in Kiev, Dad's sister and Paul's mom came to the hotel to greet them. Now in those days, this is before the Soviet Union broke up, there were shortages of everything. There were shortages of glass. So the two old ladies came to the hotel with homemade vodka in hot water bottles. And they were sitting there drinking with their son and their young brother and around 9.45 in the evening, one of the assistant managers came to the room and said, we don't allow our guests to entertain women in the rooms at night. Now that started me thinking, they must have some pretty ugly hookers in the Ukraine if they're worried about an 83 and an 89-year-old woman. Good grief. I think my time is up, and uh, I thank you all so very much, and I'm looking forward to going to Enzo's. Thank you. You've been listening to the rebroadcast of a talk given to the Fordham University community by Alex Trebek. The Jeopardy host recently lost his battle with pancreatic cancer, and Fordham lost a friend. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Robin Shannon.